0: Hey, it's Matt Herman. Thank you for joining us. It's Better With You Here. Today on the podcast, we continue down our path of exploration and remembrance while celebrating the musical that changed the world. But today's guest is a bit different as he never actually performed in the show, yet was incredibly vital to the production. I mean, what's a rock musical without sound? The world knows him as an Emmy winner, the creator of the auto mixer, and a nature recordist, but to the Hare universe, especially the San Francisco, Las Vegas, and Toronto tribes, he was simply known as the sound designer. Dan Dugan, today on Hare, the American Tribal Love Rock Podcast. To the American Tribal Love Rock podcast, my name is Matthew Herman. I am your host for today. With us is a person of incredible distinction. Uh, he is one of the, the actually the first person in regional theater to be called a sound designer. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Dugan. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm well, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, I'd want to congratulate you on your 2020 Emmy award. Thanks. Well deserved and for, I know that we'll talk a little bit about it in a little bit, but I know that the contributions that you did to sound and technical is just very impressive and very appreciative. And one thing that we have discovered, our listeners has, has discovered through this course is how much of a catalyst this musical hair was for culture and all the stuff that had spawned from it. And it really broke down barriers and really created opportunities. And as we've spoken with the previous performers, we see how it provided opportunity in theater and being involved, but you can't have a show without the technical. And I know that when I was speaking with Michael Butler, he said, you know, the story is important and all this stuff comes together to create it. And you had um, the fortune to work on three productions. So how did you get involved in Hair?
1: Well, um, the company, I, I, th- I think I was working for ACT, American Conservatory Theater, in San Francisco at the time. And uh, I was doing sound design for them. I was staff sound designer. And ACT decided to rent the Geary Theater to the production of Hair for the residents, uh, resident company in San Francisco. And so I was the you know, I was a sound guy. And of course, we had a union sound man running the shows there. And I wanted the job of mixing it. And so the company uh, was interested in that. But the union was not. So, you know, I was not a union guy. So I wasn't able to do that. But I apparently had talked myself up sufficiently in in applying for that job that they asked me to do Chicago, which was the next the
0: next production that was going up. Now, it said something that they were using in the show. They were using handhelds. It was a certain area mics. Yeah, we had had one wireless
1: mic that was used for a special effect. It was used for an echo effect in walking in space. And so that was a special thing and it was expensive and it uh, was reasonably reliable, but nothing like what you get nowadays. And so for vocals, there were uh, nine hand mics that were, you know, were sung close into in rock and roll style. Then there were 16 area mics that were hung over the stage to pick up the chorus. So whenever, you know, people were singing vocals on songs, they had a hand mic. And then when the chorus was singing, they were just being picked up by these uh, 16 hanging mics. Well, there were actually there were five in the footlights and then the rest of them were hanging on, I think, three pipes. Uh, overhead, like you know, maybe four in the first row, four in the second row, and three in the third row, uh, hanging overhead, and you know, that's very unsatisfactory in terms of what we expect to hear nowadays. This is really a transition between theater, live acoustic theater, where, for example, in, in an opera house, if someone is wrestling their program next to you, you can't hear, you know, that's how delicate the acoustic connection is with the stage, whereas. In a Broadway show, everybody is amplified now and has their own microphone. And it's an entirely different story. People can, you know, be partying like in a festival, in a music festival. People will be partying in the audience and talking and, you know, yelling at each other and all that. And the performance goes on because the performance is really loud and overrides all that. So it's an entirely different experience. And I, you know, I worked in sound through that transition. I was doing the sound for the Mondavi Winery Jazz Festival, which started out acoustic with a little reinforcement for, you know, vocals needed mics and things like that. And a few years into that, jazz became electric. Every every band was bringing electric instruments and the whole level requirement of the sound system moved up, you know, like 30 dB. And um, it was quite a difficult transition. And so this was before I mean, it was just maybe on the cusp of that in 68 was when I was working. So uh, it was really a different world. Uh, you had to listen in the theater at that time. And, you know, the hanging mics gave you a little lift, but not much. And it was really difficult to keep them from feeding back. And it was very difficult for the operator to mix them because, well, they didn't have mixing consoles in those days. Mixing consoles were something that was custom built for a studio like a recording studio or a television studio, the chief engineer, when they built a new studio, the chief engineer would build the console for the studio. And, you know, this is up until about 69 or so. Uh, then a few ready-made mixing consoles started coming out. So the hair productions that I did, I mean, all it was available because we didn't have time to spend a year building a console. What was available was racks of rotary knob mixers, you know, like like in a church or something. Well, now churches have consoles too, but uh, in the church closet of a, of a church that doesn't have music, say, something like that. There would be, a, you know, or in the high school auditorium, a little row of, of uh, knobs, except we had a lot of knobs because there were, I think, 34 microphones or something like that, which was hard to handle. And they were all be- being handled And there was like one knob per microphone. There was no EQ, there were no sends, there were no monitors. You know, none of that stuff, we were just learning, you know, doing the best we could with the technology that we had, Uh, but it was very difficult on the operator. And, you know, some productions were more successful than others because they had a talented operator. Uh, In other situations, they couldn't get one. Nowadays, there is this coterie of highly skilled Broadway sound operators, and it's an entirely different story. Again, they have these stars of what they call line mixing, where they bring up the person who's talking and turn down the other, and they, you know, they're working, they know every line in the show and they're bringing it up and they're, you know, they're right on top of it. Um, That kind of skill set wasn't available either uh, in those days. We were just, you know, stumbling around trying to figure out how we can make this loud enough. You know, in terms of the band, there was no problem. The band was on stage and there were 10 mics in the band. So that was easy but and they, you know all the instruments were close mic. and the vocals were no problem except you know dealing with the logistics of getting the microphones on and off stage and that's one thing that that I think I did that was innovative in here is that we had a rack on stage right there was was a rack that had three mics and it had slots for three mics and on stage left there was another rack with three mics and upstage center there was a rack with three mics these are the ways people enter the stage and each mic had a long cable on it. so when somebody was going to sing either somebody passed them a mic from the rack or they entered into stage grabbing a mic off the rack and then when they went off stage they would throw it back in the rack and a stagehand would sort out all the tangles in the cables and so there was one guy who was on the deck whose job was sorting out all those cables running around Backstage and constantly keeping those mic cables straight. the The real innovation was each mic was colored with uh, what was called Mystic tape. Mm-hmm. This is a cloth, a colored cloth tape that was used for home decorating projects. And so there was a red mic. You know, it was all taped up red. And there was a blue mic. And there was a yellow mic. And there was a green mic. And there was a purple mic. You know, so each mic had a color identification so that when somebody was about to sing with it, the sound operator could see Mm -hmm. what mic they had. And then we built a special switch panel with big old fashioned telephone operator lever switches. Mm -hmm. Um, And each lever switch was all taped up to be a color. So when he saw the yellow mic was coming on stage, he could flip the yellow mic switch. And bring it up and the level was already set or, you know a reasonable level to start with was already set on the mixing knob which again had a color patch of color next to it too so the yellow mic had a big switch and it had a knob and those were the controls for the yellow mic, and um and that worked you know in terms of keeping the flow going and keeping it sorted out so that was sort of a uh a way we adapted to to the needs of the show
0: why that's almost the show in itself you started working with the auto mixer
1: well no it was just the idea all these complications and all the hanging mics it was really almost too much for the operator to be able to while handling the hand mics to be able to also mix the hanging mics so they were generally left just kind of at a setting that gave a little a little boost Mm -hmm. Uh, you know maybe you could turn up stage and sing and it and your voice would be about as loud as it was when you're facing downstage. That was about the best you could do with that kind of distant miking, And so that was really sort of passive you know it's just like sort of like a you know an installed acoustic lift that was in there.
0: How was it now you had been working as you're saying you were working up at ACT and all of a sudden hair comes in which is you know rock and roll and every use how was that transition for you I mean did you consider yourself a hippie at the time I mean was it all of a sudden was your your people have come home or was it just oh my there's a circus in town. How <laughs> how was how was that?
1: I, I was fine with it. I was drafted out of the out of the sound designer job uh, at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego in '65, and when I came back from the army in '67, I looked around and and there were people I knew from the Globe in San Francisco at ACT, which is true of regional repertory theater. You know, if you go if you work in one theater and a couple of years later you go to another one, you'll know some people there because people circulate in that milieu, and so I knew people there, and they didn't need a lighting designer, which was my main trade at the time, but they needed a sound person, and I always done that too, so uh, I picked up sound and, and, you know, did a major sound job on their two theaters, and, and built their studio, and, you know, sort of really brought ACT up to a, a high level of, of sound technology, so I was ready for it, and, you know, and the company was, there were a lot of young people in the company and the, and the people in charge were you know, had, a, had a long view, And so it, it was not a problem. There were, and, and you know, hair took over the theater. I mean, the, you know, the set wasn't just on the stage, it was decorated. And that, that brings up another story if, if I may just diverge and tell another story. Um, Las Vegas was a very different, that was the second one I did, the Las Vegas hair was a whole different story and it had a lot of problems, really political problems, mm-hmm. um, logistical problems. Hair had rehearsed a Hawaii company. I don't know if this story is very well known, but they had rehearsed and, and almost ready to go with a Hawaii production. And there was some problem with the space. They couldn't get you know, the space that they wanted and they either had to cancel it or do something with this rehearsed company. So the opportunity was there to do a Las Vegas company. So they booked it into a casino in Las Vegas. Well, the attitude towards performers in Las Vegas is not copacetic to the you know the ethos of, of hair. Nothing like it. You know, people who come in are paid help. Mm-hmm. They come in, they perform, they leave they don't own the theater, whereas even though it was a resident company. So the house in Las Vegas, they had a guard in the house so that you didn't put your feet on the seats or anything like that. You know, I mean, this was not a hair company house and it was very strange. And some of the lead performers, maybe I'm exaggerating, at least one principal couldn't perform in Las Vegas because in order to go on stage in Las Vegas, you had to have a permit from the police that you were not a bad person. And some people had arrest records and could not perform in Las Vegas. And that was a big, you know, problem. I and mean, I'm sure there were meetings and the company said, we're not gonna perform. And, you know, I, there must've been, I wasn't in on any of that stuff, but there must've been a lot of, of community hell that went on around those issues, but that was Las Vegas. And you couldn't have a show unless everybody had a police permit. I don't know if that still exists or not. Wow. But so that was, very, that was a very strange place to work, um, that one.
0: That's very, that's very interesting with Vegas because it's always Sin City and what happens here exactly. stays here. For them exactly. to be like...
1: But everybody has to have their cut of both the money and control. You know, I mean, behind, <laughs> the, scene, behind the scenes, it's, everybody is hooked up. All power people are hooked up.
0: Crazy. So when you go into these venues, as you said, normally if it's an opera house or if it's established place and when you would go in, how creative would you have to be and, and like how, how did you handle all kind of kind of creating and building the show?
1: Well, uh, the company moved in and, you know, and did their thing. Uh, I don't know where the sets were built. I expect they were built in Canada for Canada mm-hmm. and San Francisco for San Francisco. There wasn't a whole lot of building and you know, the sets were kind of crude and simple. And the sound system came from a local contractor. The equipment was rented locally. And so you know, I, as a designer, supervised how it was done and training the operator, got it through the rehearsals. And then I would come back periodically to check up on the show and see if it was okay.
0: What were some of the tricky transitions? Is there any, was there any kind of like trouble moments of the show to where like, you have to anticipate this comes in and and this comes or?
1: Well, good question. But I don't remember any particular I mean, you know, we didn't have scene changes. Usually, in regional theater, the difficulty will come with some kind of scene change that has to be done in a certain amount of time. And you have to practice it and practice it. And then something goes wrong, you know, and you can't make the change and the people are standing there in front of the curtain and it can't open, you know, but there were no moments like that in here because it just flowed, you know, it was this this humanity thing coming in and out. So the, the people on stage ran, you know, ran the show. I don't ever recall anybody missing a cue and not appearing you know when they were supposed to appear. Uh, I remember that happened twice in a, in a Shakespeare festival where the actors had to just make up some lines and walk <laughs> off because, because the next person was not there. But um, that's rare. That's very rare in the theater. But nothing like that ever happened in here because it was organic and the people were all there and they didn't go anywhere during the show. So they didn't have to go for costume changes or anything like that. You know, it was very loose and uh, familial.
0: We've been talking to the, the cast members and stuff that have been on stage, but you've had the luxury of being in the house and actually to watch and see that. One of the stories I've heard about, I think it was the Los Angeles cast, was at the end of the first act when the police come in to try to bust them. I remember hearing that they actually had to hold the house because all you heard was everybody emptying their pockets in the audience. And you hear all this clinking and, and that stuff and they actually had to hold. Was there any Was there any stories or anything from watching from the productions of the audiences or seeing, be able to see the audience's reactions or? is there any is there any memories of the show that you remember I mean that that standup yes. in particular yeah
1: well in San Francisco um you know uh, as as in every city that has a theater district the people that come to the theater aren't necessarily from the city you know they come in from the suburbs mm-hmm. and they come in on the train or they drive in and so you know there's a certain cultural elite who can afford to go to the theater it's expensive and it was then I mean, now it's always over, you know, $100, to $150. Then it would, might have been $30 was a really expensive theater ticket. But in any case, it was expensive because, you know, you got to put on all this stuff, pay all these people. And they had a religious experience. The show was effective spiritually on the people who came expecting to be entertained. Okay. And they got, and they were entertained, no doubt about it. They were well entertained. But not only that, they were converted. They got this attitude. I mean, they might have come in thinking, you know, hippies were these dirty people or whatever. But, you know, after the show, people came up and, you know, and danced on the stage and and they, you know, and they stood in the house and, you know, and clapped forever. And it was, you know, it was a religious experience for people in San Francisco. And I'm sure in other towns too. I don't remember. I visited several other shows, but mm-hmm. this is 50 years ago. You know, I don't, I don't remember. But slept I slept since
0: then. It's it's totally, it's totally fine.
1: Yeah but-, yeah, but I do remember that you know that it was a spiritual experience. It was like a like a um, you know like an evangelical church service. You know, mm-hmm. they got the spirit and and uh, it moved them.
0: Were were you moved by it? I know that you said that you yes. had gotten drafted and and having. Come back in, and, and some people do take issue with the with the anti-war. And as I as I spoke with others, um, that we said it's you know the conflict is the question, but the people that are are sacrificing and don't, they can never be faulted because you're trying to do your part in what you feel. Was there was there anything that um how how did it how did that show affect you?
1: Well, I was anti-war before I was drafted. Um, I was anti-war while I was in the Army, uh, even though I had to do what I had to do. I did not go to the war. I was very lucky I didn't get sent to Vietnam. And I had a pretty good time in the Army. They needed my skills, as it turns out. People who went in the Army in 1965 were either drafted because they weren't in college or they uh, volunteered because they were crazy, you know, to, to want to do that. So, and I was against the war when I came out. And, and actually the first thing I did when I came out from the army was something I didn't do. That is, I didn't cut my hair and beard. So, you know, I became progressively a hippie after uh, I came out of the army. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was years and years and years before I cut my hair. I had hair down to my waist because, you know, at the time that, that uh, let's see, 67. Well, I only had a year's growth of hair, I guess, when, uh, when I worked for hair. So it was probably longer than shoulders length and you know, I probably had a decent beard, but um, I was a wannabe hippie, you know, but I was so straight. I was really so straight and I was very rational and I was an engineer, you know, I was a young an engineer in my twenties and I was very fixed on theory. I did everything for theoretical reasons because I didn't have that much experience. You know, people with experience do things according to their experience. <laughs> people who don't have experience use theories. You know, they're not as good. i tell you, I made a lot of mistakes, but that's where I was in my life. And uh, it, was, it was a very good learning experience. But so I was a wannabe hippie, but I really wasn't, a, I wasn't driven by uh, my desires the way the prototypical hippie was, mm-hmm. you know, I was driven by my mind. and so I was, I was a little bit sort of at a, in another place compared to the tribe. And I didn't hang out with the tribe because I was pretty much a loner and I was you know concentrating on my technical things. And you know that kind of technology is very demanding. if, the, if you don't pay attention to it, you lose, you fail spectacularly. You know, because sound is a chain. Every link in the chain has to be right for it to come in one end go through all this chain of things and come out the other end, not ruined, you know, hopefully better. And it really wasn't until I got married and had kids in my 30s and 40s that I became more of a rounded human being and understood things about the value of parents and things like that. You know, it wasn't, it was long after that, that I got out of my super nerdiness. Now I'm a, you know, now I'm a, a more humane nerd. I'm still a nerd, but I'm more humane. I, I once stood up in the audience and stopped a show in San Francisco, not here. Um, some friends had invited me to this multimedia uh, performing, uh, performance. And the sound was just awful. Something, had, something was totally screwed. And you know, after three minutes, I stood up and said, wait a minute. I see there's three sound engineers here in the audience. I'm sure we can figure out what's wrong and and start over. And so we did. And we found out that the video crew, who were friends of mine actually, they were my next door neighbors here in the lab, um, had come in and plugged in their feed from the sound system at the last minute. And they had happened to take the, the stereo output of the sound system and just wide it into mono to go to the uh, uh, to go to their video mm-hmm. and um, that had caused distortion in both channels and it was just totally screwed and so you know that was the solution anyway
0: <laughs> but that's that's the one thing that's very interesting about it is because it's it's knowing those those nuts and bolts and that that process of it um, I know that you have done sometimes,
1: sometimes you need a nerd you know.
0: I wonder, does it still exist, the, the, mic, the mic tracking chart with all the, the different color codes? I Oh,
1: like. well, no, see, this didn't have to be written down. Uh, the operator didn't have to follow a script to, to cue in the mics because it was a different mic often every time that a person would use. Uh, you know, someone would hand them a mic or they would get somebody else on stage or they'd grab it off the rack. That was the, the beauty of the color code system is that the queuing was just organic you know yeah. green mic
0: on there we go and, and that was it yeah so no they didn't have to follow a script and and body mics body mics didn't exist at they didn't exist at the time they existed right. but we had one Oh. <laughs> now you know nowadays there would be 20 yeah you put and they they you know have them in the wig pack you know and, and all of right. that right and, and and
1: and the the mic is often Positioned in the hairline, which sounds pretty good, or it's positioned over here by the ear, or something like that. Yeah, no, it's a it's a new craft. It's and just
0: interesting the progression of technology and how how now is there stuff is there stuff available today that you were like oh if we only had it if we only had this back then.
1: Well, you know, when I was in high school, I made drawings of different ways that you could do color-controlled lights because I was wanted to be a lighting designer, which I became after college but I I never was able to invent anything practical for that. I had three or four different ways it could be done. And now when you talk about, you know, that you use moving lights in the the very beginning of that, um, also color control lights, those were, which means you didn't have to gel them. And that made such a huge change in the, you know, if, if we'd had those in theater when I was working as a lighting designer, everything would have been different because when you committed to colors, mm-hmm. then you were committed to those colors, the lights were those colors. And for a, a change in the mood, you could maybe have two sets of lights, but you couldn't have five sets of lights for five different, you know, color tones. You know, you could maybe have your night scenes and your day scenes, different sets of gels for those, but that means you had to hang lights twice, you know, I mean double. Um, now you have color control lights, which are expensive, but that means, you know, you have this incredible artistic palette to work with. Mm -hmm. And, oh, I, you know, I I so much would love to have worked, (laughs) have had those tools back when I was doing lighting. And the same thing with the, you know, with the digital consoles that have memory presets now that you just push a button, you get scene 27, just like a lighting preset. I was working in lighting just at the time when electronic dimmer boards were coming in and they were unreliable, but they did things that, you know, that uh, you couldn't do before, like many scene presets. So now it's the same thing with sound for the last 20 years or so we've had digital boards. And, you know, if we'd had that then it would have been a whole different scene. It would have been the same show, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but um, it would have sounded better.
0: Uh, The the mix would have been better. People don't realize like that technology has to con- continue on. Um, to kind of go back to, to hair for a second, if a younger audience was to go see it, what would you hope to be the takeaway for the younger for the younger audiences?
1: Well, uh, it, it, you know it, it's it's aged in terms of some of the themes and the you know the words that are used and things like that, but the problems are the same. Mm-hmm. you know, greed and not caring. Have become even a larger problem, I think, now than they were then. Uh, We have the whole generation of people being brought up to believe that, you know, I should get what's mine, and people who get in the way are just suckers, you know, to be pushed out of the way. And I mean, that's, I'm, I'm, this is the, you know, the Trumpian ethic that anybody that doesn't take advantage, and I, you know, I see that. Driving on the highway, there are more people weaving. You know, saying, "You know, you're not going fast enough. I'm gonna get in front of you." So I think the, you know, the spiritual theme of the show is completely up to date. The problems remain. It's it's a problem of humanity uh, that you know, greed and and grasping is is uh, still with us more than ever. And you know, the same thing with you know, global wars and things like that, and and American kids going off to fight other places where they're not really fighting for the people who were there they're fighting for oil interests and you know things like that and uh, it's the same problem that we were protesting with hair in uh you know in 65 66 67 68
0: um same thing you did chicago vegas and then you went up to toronto was there any difference in the technology from...
1: I think the, the main thing that I remember is that, that in Canada, you couldn't get a plug strip. They didn't even know what it was. You know, you go to hardware, sir, answer, plug strip. Well, they, they don't have plug strips. You had to have an electrician come in and put in quad boxes to plug things in. Um, really? It was, you know, safety, safety rules were, were more strict about uh, multiple plugs. So that's, that's the only thing I remember. <laughs> Toronto is a, a fairly straight town. It, it's kind of like San Francisco. It's kind of a financial center of Canada, in Canada, say. So it wasn't that different from San
0: Francisco. Now you developed the auto mixer? Yeah,
1: yeah, here was really the stimulus that made me think about this problem. You know, how do you deal with a whole bunch of mics when you don't know what's going to happen? And, uh, you know, when it's not programmed. And uh, I worked on that for about six years and I came up with a really good solution to it. And so uh, I've been mining that vein uh, ever since. And there's still lots of applications where automatic mixing can be used that it's not being used. So, uh, you know, just the notion of marketing and making models that are more specific to different applications is still ongoing. So I manufacture seven different little black boxes which are used for converting existing systems to automatic mic mixing, putting it in as what's called an insert to the console. Also, I license to manufacturers to include my algorithm in their digital mixing console, which is the best way to do it. Uh, It's certainly a lot easier for me. I don't have to, you know, manufacturing is a lot of trouble putting out fires, basically what you do, some part becomes not available. You have to find a substitute It doesn't fit. You have to redesign the circuit board just to stay in business, you know? So, I mean, manufacturing is a lot of trouble, uh, especially something that changes fast, like electronics. Licensing is, is much more fun. So I'm doing more of that and uh, less of product development because I pretty much have the, the retrofit covered, uh, retrofit market covered. And uh, have a lot of fun traveling the world, going to uh, trade shows in Beijing and Hong Kong and Amsterdam, and I'm going to go to Barcelona for the first time in, in February, and uh, that's really great. It's you know I'm not rich, but I you know what I make enough to be able to promote my inventions around the world, and that's all I need. You know I don't need a boat or, I need a boat. You know I, I rent. You know, I don't own property, but it's fine. I'm just fine where I am. And so, you know, it's worked very well. Well, I joke about it because the, uh, the automatic mixer is used like for all the political debates. And so of course, you know, I made it possible for Trump to interrupt. And so, um, but, you know, it has its positive and negative aspects, but basically the automatic mic mixer frees any kind of group discussion from having to worry about the technology. It just disappears. It becomes transparent. You just talk and you don't have to worry about the person cueing you in because that's what it does. It cues people in. It's a simple, it's just one function. You know, it's just that one thing that it does, but it does it so well. And the need is so great that my customers just love me. You know, originally when it went into TV, late night TV talk shows, like the Letterman show was one of the first ones to use it. And some of the union guys say, oh, you know, they come to me at the trade say, You're the guy who's trying to take our job away. You know, not really, because you need to have a person there mm-hmm. dealing with everything that's changing all the time. But what I do is I make them look good. And so once they have experience with it and they realize that they're not in trouble because they missed that mic and they missed, you know, it's, it's a hell of a job in a, in a free form discussion or you know, a show like Hair, but this they can't line mix because there's no script, you know, in a political debate, for example, but this does automatic line mixing, and you just don't worry about it. You leave the faders up, and you just adjust volume. You just mix, so you do the artistic part. You know, you're still doing the artistic part. You're doing the mixing. You're balancing people, and, you know, they sit back in their chair. You can move their mic up a little bit, and stuff like that. You're mixing, but you're not doing all this crazy, Ooh, where is he? Oh, 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 wrong, Mike, that one, you know, the mixer of, of a, a live show uh, is often, you know, gets these stares for the producer, you know, mm-hmm. where, the, where were you, you know? Um, automatic mixing takes care of the, the robot part of mixing and allows the mixer to be an artist. So it's a win-win situation.
0: I would like to know a little more about um, the environmental. You were doing nature recordings and... Uh,
1: yeah, the nature recording is an entirely different thing uh, that I do. You know, I do it for recreation. Um, I work just as hard at that as, as I do at the automatic mixer stuff, but it's completely different and it gets me out into the national parks. And it's, it's, so it's both recreation and hard work. Um, but I like working hard and to do something different especially something that's artistic. Uh, I met uh, some people from, well, it's too long a story, but I used to be the Northern California Nagra repairman. There's a Swiss tape recorder that they used to use on movies, uh, the Nagra. And through that, I met everybody that had a Nagra in the Bay Area, which was all the people making movies and television. And a guy from the museum who brought his Nagra over and said, you know, we get together up in the mountains once a year and we have a a, uh, a workshop of learning how to record nature. Why don't you come along? And so I did. And it was really great fun because it was technology plus camping, you know, uh, so all good, all good things put together. And so I have been in this role as a, as a mentor for the Nature Sound Society for about over 30 years now. Um, And it's great fun. We haven't had workshops the last two years because of COVID, but we'll go back to it. And um, so gradually I've gotten into doing my own thing in it. What I try to do is artistic surround sound recordings of natural environments, because after all nature is all around. So, you know, theatrical, you know, Dolby Atmos surround sound with overheads and everything kind of recording is suitable to a natural environment. It's also a hell of a lot of trouble to set up, but um, that's the technical part of it. And it's also scientific value. It's you know it's getting a snapshot of what the species and the activity was at a particular time and place. And so I greatly enjoy doing that, and I've developed a relationship with some of the parks, uh, and I get research permits, scientific research permits which enables me to go in and set up my mics and sleep right there, you know, ordinarily where you wouldn't be allowed to camp. And so, I mean, I I developed the sleeping system because for many years, I would stumble in at 3.30 in the morning, trying to find the place that I had marked where I wanted to record. But of course, everything looks different at night. Oh yeah. And, you know, and besides being half awake. And so, and I would set up and sometimes I would fall down and you know, (laughs) and, and skin my knees, but then I realized, well, you know, there's stuff that happens during the night too. So if I came in the afternoon and set up, then I could record in the evening when there's kind of an evening chorus sometime. And then I could record at night when there's owls and coyotes and branches falling and, you know, interesting things that go bump in the night. And then I'd be right in place in my sleeping bag where I have to just turn something on when the dawn chorus starts in the morning. So I developed this scientific protocol which covers all that stuff. And I get these beautiful recordings. Sometimes it's really cosmic. And I say it's a lot of work, but it pays off in in uh, the beauty of what I develop. And also it's valuable. The, you know, the, the scientists who work with the park appreciate having that stuff in their archives. And I got about eight to ten years of of archives now of uh, stuff that I've done in in the Sequoia Groves of Yosemite, which is one of my long-term projects. And then I have a long-term project at Joshua Tree National Monument. Uh, that's a beautiful desert park, east of Los Angeles. And I record there every year, a couple other places. Um, so that's, that's really, that's my hobby. I keep saying when I retire from being a manufacturer, what I'm gonna do is just do the nature recording full-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I look forward to that. So if you're interested in nature sound recording, look that up and uh, we'll be glad to help you. You know, our mission is to help people and to help the parks with their scientific work. So those of us who are highly skilled help the parks. And then we also help people who are learning. You know, people say, well, what should I get to do this and that? And so we teach and we lend equipment out freely and, you know, we have great fun with it.
0: Well, fantastic and I'll put the, I'll put the the link for that in the show notes so that our listeners can go and check in if they want. Is there any advice or a tip or a common misconception that you want to set the record straight on or is there
1: <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, I have a little experience with music recording. I, I've got um, I record, made some albums for the folk artist of Kate Wolf uh, that are still in print. there's, there's two uh, of hers that are still in print. And the second one I'm very proud of because that was live mixed, uh, you know, not multi-track with multiple instruments being mixed live to stereo. uh, And uh, I'm still very proud of that. It sounds good today. And that was uh, 50 years ago. But I think a vocalist, if they've got, if they're singing to headphones because they they usually are in a multi-track studio, they're listening to the, you know, the backing track or a temporary track, at least, if there's a little bit of reverb put in along with their voice uh, that helps them keep on pitch. And it's like, you know, singing, why does singing in the shower sound so good? Because you've got a lot of feedback, you know, it's like wearing headphones. And so if there's a little reverberation that helps you stay on pitch because it brings your pitch back to you. And so you, you can sing in tune with yourself, you know? So that's all I say is a little, a little reverb in the headphones, even though it, it may not be mixed that way at all in the
0: final production but this is just for the artist to listen to can be helpful. That makes perfect sense. And now finally to, to bring us out, you know, we always talk about hair being a protest piece and, and having a message and sending out the messages. And there's always, if you see the rallies and all this stuff, people have signs, a simple sentence. It doesn't have to be in, in protest. It could be in support. It can be an affirmation. What would your What would your sign be?
1: Hmm. Well, I have a friend who when asked, what her sign was, and this is of course referring to uh, astrological, would say uh, gas, food, lodging next three exits. Um, but that's that's, uh, that's Judy's joke. But um, gosh, what what would I want to put on a banner uh, to present to uh, in facing the problem? I think it would really it would be specific. Well, I don't know. I've got to let me let me think maybe I can maybe I can approach it from the viewpoint of something that happened this week. I live in an, an industrial area. And there's a lot of people who live in tents and recreational vehicles. And there's an RV across the street here, where the guy painted white power on the sidewalk, two days ago. What, what would I what do I want to present to him? You know, what's my sign? What's my sign to him? Boy, oh, I actually, I, I want to stay away from him because I think he's going to, he's you know, if I give him trouble. I asked the city to erase it because it's on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And they did. They came within a few hours because I told them the content of it. And they power washed it, but you can still read it. It wasn't enough. And he also wrote 2316, that's code for WP for white power it's the 23rd letter of the alphabet that's white supremacist code okay
0: I had never um,
1: so um i don't know maybe just humanity is my sign
0: that's true hey that works because you know we're all in it together and i wish that's yeah. exactly what it is is because what you know that we have working back and forth but um, you know what our what our strengths may be somebody else's weaknesses and other people's strengths may be our weaknesses, but it's yeah. that appreciation working together for a better part. It doesn't, it doesn't cause to to try to separate one as better. We're all in it together. So I think humanity, I think that's a perfect, perfect thing because we're all we're all in it together. We are all we are all one. And as as they say with hair, it's that let the sun shine in and we'll bring it together because we're all we're all humans.
1: Amen, brother.
0: We were all born. Well, Dan, thank you so, so much for taking the time of speaking with us today. I, I appreciate you and I appreciate your contributions to the world and humanity. So um, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Matt. Thank you for, uh, for speaking to me. Dan Dugan is an American audio engineer, inventor and nature sounds recordist. He was the first person in regional theater to be called a sound designer and he developed the first effective automatic microphone mixer, the Auto Mixer. Dugan's sound design work was acknowledged in 2003 with a Distinguished Career Award by the United States Institute for Theater Technology, and in 2020 with an Emmy Award for technology relevant to remote working. In 2021, he was awarded Fellowship in the Audio Engineering Society. Hair, the American Tribal Love Rock Podcast is a production of The Hair Company. Michael Butler, Matthew Herman, Conwell Worthington, John and Jeannie Cutler with assistance from Nina Macklin-Dayton in the Hair Archive. A very, very special thank you goes to James Rado, Jerome Ragney, and Galt McDermott whose music was featured in this episode. If you have a story you'd like to share with us we can be reached by email at podcast at hair-live.com That's podcast at H-A-I-R hyphen L-I-V-E dot com. We hope you have a wonderful week. And remember, be free, be whoever you are, do whatever you do, just so long as you don't hurt anyone. And remember, I am your friend.